Galatians chapter 5. Those joining us on the live stream, again, I want to thank everybody for the comments and the prayers and the thoughts and the cards and all the things during the loss of my grandmother and my aunties uh, this last couple weeks that we've been gone. Thank you, guys. We uh, Last time we were together, we was in chapter 5, and uh, we uh, looked at uh, verses 2 down through 6. Uh, today we're going to pick up in uh, verse 7. And, uh, Lord willing, work our way down to verse 12. We'll see how far we get. Um, but we'll look at verses 7 through 12. I'll go ahead and uh, <clears throat> read that. Before we do, let's uh, pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are so kind, so great, so good, so gracious to us. We come this morning, Father, to honor and glorify your name. You are our Redeemer, you are our Savior, you are the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, at whose name every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that you are Lord. And so, Father, we come this morning uh, surrounded by the majesty that is Christ uh, to look into the Word of God, to see you there. Um, Father, we come to be edified. Uh, by the preaching of the word, we come, Father, to lift up your name. We come for the fellowship and love of the brethren. And so, Father, we just pray that today, that in this worship, you might meet with us by your spirit, and that you might help us to worship you rightly, that you might help us, Father, to hear and to understand, that you might enlighten your word uh, to our mind, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for these brethren that are here, that you might build them up in the precious holy faith, Lord. I pray that you might um, give them understanding, that you might encourage them, that you might give them direction uh, in their life, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you just might meet their needs as we just sing about. And Father, I just pray, Lord, that you just might be glorified today in everything that we do. I pray that you might help me to... Uh, minister the word, Lord, with my throat hurting this morning. I pray that you might give me the ability to uh, make it through this message. Lord, I pray that it might not be a hindrance to the listening uh, by anybody, Lord. And I just ask that you just might make Christ be magnified today in what all we do and what all we say. And we thank you for it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> we'll read verses 7 down through 12. He says... <clears throat> Ye did run well, who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And brethren, that's something that we really need to keep in mind when it comes to the congregation. Okay? A lot of times you hear me say, or you may hear other preachers uh, of like faith in order to say these things, but, but, Guarding doctrine within the church is extremely important. If you'll do a study through the New Testament, you'll find in many, many places the Holy Spirit has given Paul to instruct the churches to guard their doctrine closely, to watch their cl doctrine closely, that the doctrine does matter. And 
we look in modern churches today and doctrine doesn't matter to anybody anymore. Matter of fact, me and Kevin and Jacqueline and my wife was uh, together last night and we were talking about this very thing. People just does not seem to care about doctrine. They just, whatever somebody says, if they're standing behind one of these things, they think that whatever that guy says is true and they just go with it. But nobody is concerned with doctrine. It's all about, oh, how much we just have this gushing love for God and this wonderful communal love for everybody else. And that seems to be the focus of their whole worship, the focus of their whole uh, existence is that we just had this ooey-gooey worship feeling uh, with, of coming and serving God together and living, you know, the, the phrase I hear often is doing life together and all that kind of stuff. Brethren, <clears throat> the way that you love the brethren according to the Word of God is by doctrine, is by teaching doctrine, by observing doctrine, uh, by defending the doctrine, by encouraging each other in the doctrine of Christ. That's how we show our love. Our love isn't just showed by caring for each other in this uh, phileo love, this brotherly love type love. The way that we show godly love is by doctrine. And so Paul here makes a statement, a little leaven, leaven at the whole lump, and we're going to deal with that, but pay close attention to that uh, as we go through he says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Remember, the, the Judaizers were saying that this is the message of Paul too. You know, they were, they were saying, hey, Paul's teaching this. But Paul's like, hey, I've never been teaching that to you guys. Okay, and now he's saying, hey, if I preach circumcision, then why am I suffering persecution at the hands of these guys? Then the offense of the cross uh, uh, ceased. We'll talk about that in a minute as well. I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. <clears throat> and we'll stop right there and see how far we get. Now, if you remember back, brethren, what we talked about, and I'll try to re recap just briefly here, what we talked about last time we were together. Last time we were together, we looked at verses 2 down through 6, and we've seen that um, if we desire to follow the law for righteousness, for justification, for preservation, if we decide to do that, then the work of Christ doesn't profit us anything. Christ died in vain. There's no reason for Christ to have even come if we can obtain some sort of righteousness, that's acceptable to God, some form of preservation that will keep us with God if we can do that through our works or through our law-keeping. And that's what Paul said in verse 2. He said, if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Another way to look at that, the other side of that coin, is if you're seeking justification, righteousness, through law-keeping, then what Christ did on the cross in, in, in his life of obedience and his substitution uh, for us in that and his death and substituting for us in that, if you want to do this by the law, then everything that Christ secured in his death or his life and his death is going to be of no credit to you. Okay? Christ only credits... His work 
to those whom he has died. And for those whom he has died, he gives them faith to um, look at what he has done. See, the faith that Christ gives us uh, as newborn children of God, he gives us, uh, and that faith will only rest in or receive the righteousness of Christ alone. It doesn't look to works. It doesn't look to self-righteousness. It doesn't look to our obedience or our law-keeping. It looks to Christ, and it rests in Christ. And so what Paul said there was that everything that Christ secured in salvation for his people will not be credited to those who are seeking after righteousness through law-keeping, through works. Okay? And then in verse 3, he said, I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. He, so he's reminding them, remember, the law says that you've got to keep every bit of the law all the time. No, no breaking of any of it. If you've broken any of it, you've broken all of it. Okay? So if you say, I want to keep the law here in circumcision to be uh, justified before God or to be saved, to be preserved as you're walk through life, or whatever, he says, remember, if you choose to go that route, you got to do it all the time, and you got to keep every law, not just a couple that you pull out of here that you like, you got to keep every one of those, <clears throat> and the fact remains, as the Bible teaches, for all have sinned, everybody has broken the law, everybody has fallen short of the glory of God, and that no man will be justified by the deeds of the law, that's what the Bible clearly declares. Now that's not just a foreshadow or a fore, um, a foreshadow or not a foreshadow and a foreknowing of things that God's looking to the very end and saying, well, nobody was able to keep the law. Now that's God telling us, declaring to us the fact of the matter. No man will be justified by the deeds of the law because God never, from the foundation of the world, never intended man to gain righteousness, to be righteous, to uh, do anything by the work of his own hands. It never was a, a case of works. We hear that, sometimes you might hear this by some, by some people that teach, in the Old Testament it was a, it was a, a covenant of works and, and that they were saved by keeping all these laws and keeping these works. They weren't saved by that. Did God give them them laws but those laws to keep, they kept breaking. That's why they kept having to sacrifice those animals. The, the daily sacrifices, the yearly sacrifices, all these things were being sacrificed over and over again because those people couldn't keep that law. And God put all the weight of all those laws on them. And at every turn, they were... <laughs> they, and they had all these different things that they had to do. That, you know, for this, sacri or for this sin, you had to sacrifice this. For this sin, you had to sacrifice this. If you did this, you had to bring this as a sacrifice or do this. And it was just a constant agitation to people because they were continually reminded, we can't keep this. This is That's why they said in Acts, this is more than anyone can bear. This is a yoke. This is, a, this is something that is a load that no man can bear. The law was meant to crush us. So Paul here is saying, listen, if you desire to try to gain righteousness by the law, you're going to have to keep it all. But remember, the Bible says that by the deeds of the law, no man will be justified. So we look at verse 4. He says, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. 
you are fallen from grace. So he's telling these Galatians who at one time uh, believed the in grace, believed in sovereign grace, that Christ has saved us. Everything that Christ did was laid to our account, and there isn't no need for us to keep law for righteousness or anything like that. And so Paul said, listen, for you who are coming under the law and everything, he said, you're, you've fallen away from the doctrine of grace. You've fallen back into a doctrine of law and works. The very thing that the Pharisees was steeped in. You've fallen back into religion. You've fallen back into uh, law-keeping when the Bible is telling you to look to Christ and it's about faith, okay? And so, verse 5, he says, For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So, as we walk through life, we don't walk in, in a work salvation. We walk in a trusting in what Christ has done. So, it's not about what we do. You've probably heard this. Uh, cliche all the time. It's not about what we do, it's about what was done. Okay? It's not what we do, it's what Christ did. And so, that's, that's the gospel. That's what we live under. That's what we walk by. That's the gospel message. And we obey, and we'll talk about this, uh, in, uh, days to come probably, but we obey the truth by walking in the Spirit. And when you walk in the Spirit, that is walking by faith, looking to Christ for your righteousness. That's what walking in the Spirit. A lot of people think walking in the Spirit is walking in obedience. In obedience. That, oh, I'm doing all these good things, you know, I'm walking in obedience. That's not what walking in the Spirit means. The reprobate can do a lot of that, you know. As a matter of fact, I've seen a lot of people that's fallen away from the faith and now just into utter degeneracy. But at one time, listen, they they walked a lot more upright than I did. I mean, they were more obedient to laws than I was and everything. But they have fallen away, and they've gone away, never to be seen, and, uh, and everything. So walking in the Spirit is walking by faith, according to the Word of God. And then in verse 6, it says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. So see there, Paul says, so when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter if you keep the law or don't keep the law. It doesn't matter because that is not the basis upon which Christ has saved you. It is not based upon conditions, whether you do or don't. And I would, I would point you this verse almost is a parallel verse if you look at it long enough. This verse is a parallel verse to Romans 9 where it says, The children having done nothing good or bad, so that the purpose of God according to election might stand, God chose one and not the other. It's almost a parallel verse because here it says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything good, or uncircumcision, bad, availeth anything, but faith which worketh by love. Of course, we all know no one gets faith without Christ giving it to us, right? He has to grant us faith. Um, we can't work that up in ourselves. So, last time we met together, we've seen that Paul is again grinding these Galatians down to the fact that this gospel, which is no gospel that is being preached by these men, is nothing more than works gospel, and it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you continue to believe this and trust in this and hope in this for your righteousness, 
you will miss all of what grace is about. And and if you continue in this unbelief, you you will not be uh, a child of grace, but a child of Satan. Now, today we pick up in um, verse 7. And he says, Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? Now, he said, you did run well. He said, what does that mean? He said, there was a time after you received the gospel, whenever I came to preach it, you loved that truth. You desired that truth. You stood in that truth. That doctrine was precious to you, and you were running well. You were in this in this uh, uh, Christian walk and doing well in it. But he said here, you did run well. Who did hinder you? that you should not obey the truth. So somebody came in and hindered them, slowed them down, sent them backwards from the race that they were running, the walk that they were walking. Somebody came in and hindered them with this um, untruth. And so he said, you did run well. Who did hinder you? And so that hindrance, whatever that was that they came and did, of course we know by the scriptures it was the preaching of the law here, specifically circumcision, that preaching of the law hindered them that they weren't going forward in walking in the Spirit, but had reversed their course where they were looking back towards works and walking in the flesh. See, whenever we're not walking in the Spirit, which is a spiritual thing, right? To walk in the Spirit is a spiritual thing. We do that trusting in Christ. That's something that is done through the Spirit. But whenever we desire to do law-keeping, that's something that we keep in the flesh. So whenever we desire to keep the law, that's walking in the flesh. And so Paul here is saying, someone came in and slowed you down, reversed your course from walking in the Spirit to walking in the flesh. You're looking at a work salvation. Now, we've already seen this in our passages once before. Look, if you would, back to Galatians chapter 2. At verse 14, Galatians 2, 14, Paul wrote, But when I say that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Now, of course, this was the retelling of the account back in Acts chapter 15, right? But what did Paul say here? He said, whenever they were walking not uprightly, according to the truth of the gospel. So the truth of the gospel, or walking in the truth of the gospel, is walking uprightly. Walking in the truth of the gospel is the same as walking in the spirit. We're going to be seeing that in days to come. And so whenever he says that if you walk by the law, and law-keeping for righteousness, preservation, perseverance, then you're not walking uprightly. To walk uprightly is to continue in that course that what you were set upon when the gospel was preached of free salvation, of free grace, of imputed righteousness. Not imparted righteousness, imputed righteousness. Righteousness that is outside of you. Righteousness that was freely given to you. That is the walk that we walk. We walk 
trusting that as our righteousness. That's what Abraham did. Whenever Christ appeared to Abraham and told Abraham of the righteousness that would be given to him by Christ Jesus, Abraham believed God and he accounted it, the seed, Christ Jesus, the righteousness of Christ, as his righteousness. And he walked trusting in that righteousness uh, and not his own. And so everyone who is born after Abraham or is quote-unquote, a child of Abraham, walks the same way. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees, you remember Jesus told the Pharisees, you know, they kept saying, hey, we're Abraham's children, we're Abraham's children. And Jesus said, hey, if you were Abraham's children, you would walk like Abraham walked. You would trust me. But you're trusting in your law-keeping. You're trusting in your religion. He said, Abraham looked away from those things, And he trusted in me. He looked ahead and saw my day and trusted in me. He was glad to see that it was by righteousness and not by his law keeping. He was happy to see that. And so um, that's what Jesus tells all of us, just like the Pharisees. You know, if we are children of Abraham, we will walk as Abraham walked. And that was walking uprightly, walking in the spirit, walking by faith. So he says here, you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth. I kind of was looking at these words, the Greek words behind these things uh, uh, this week. That word obey there, it's kind of strange. That word obey there is pithio, and that word actually means, it's a verb that means to convince. It means to um, uh, to uh, passively assent, to agree, to believe, to have confidence in, uh, to trust, And so that word obey isn't a rigid thing that we have to go out and keep a condition, but it's a passive thing that we receive and acknowledge. It's it's acknowledging the truth of what has been done. See, that's what obeying the truth is. It's not an active thing that we do as far as keeping laws in the flesh, but it's a semi-passive, and when I say passive, I, I... we do believe that is not necessarily passive, but it is something that's granted to us. It's not something that we can work up. It's a supernatural work. It's a spiritual work. But what I'm trying to get across is the fact that this word obey is a word that actually means just to trust, to convince, to rest in. The Bible tells us that we are to abide in Christ, to rest in Christ. Okay? Those words aren't words of work. It's not words of of labor. It's words of resting. And so Christ here is telling us that we are to rest in the truth. If we are hindered that we should not obey the truth, then that means that we are no longer resting in, being comforted in, being convinced by the truth. And what was the truth? The truth was... This righteousness has been given to you freely. See, if I come to Kevin and I tell Kevin, okay, Kevin, you got to do this, 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 this. If you do all this stuff, then I'm going to give you my righteousness. Well, that's not good news because Kevin's going to find out quickly that he cannot do this, 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 this. And so he may come back to me next week and he may say, all right, well, you give me 25 things to do and I did 24 of them. 
And I say, well, I'm sorry. The stipulation was you had to do all 25 of them. And if you didn't do all 25 of them, then you've broken all 25, even though you only broke one. And so, Kevin, you don't get righteousness because you didn't keep 25 of them. And just say that I'm a good old guy, and I say, let's restart it, Kevin. 25 things. Go this week and keep these 25 things. He meets me next week. Guess what? He only did 23 of them. Well, I did 23. I only missed a couple. I'm sorry, Kevin. The thing was, you got to keep them all. It's going to it's going to become quick that this is not good news. You mean God has given us this so that we can keep it? No, He's given us this to show us we can't keep it. But if I come to Kevin and I say, Kevin, you know those twenty five things that you see that needs to be kept? I know that you can't keep them. So guess what? This guy over here, he did keep them, and because he kept them, I'm going to take what he did and I'm going to apply that to you. So even though you didn't keep them, I'm going to count you as keeping them because he did. You see, that's what imputed righteousness is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. Something has been done for us that we cannot do ourselves. Grace is all about, it's not just unmerited favor. We use that phrase so often to the point that we lose the meaning of it. It is unmerited favor. But the, 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 the truth of the matter is, is grace is taking something that is unattainable to the child of the flesh and giving it to them and saying, here, this is yours. You don't deserve it. You can't merit it. But I'm giving it to you because you cannot do it. See, I used to hate... It, it, among doctors of grace believers, we have this little acronym called TULIP. And, you know, it stands for Total Depravity, uh, uh, Unlimited... Uh, 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 or excuse me, uh, unconditional election, uh, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Okay? Well, the I in there, irresistible grace, I used to hate the talk about irresistible grace. You mean God's going to save me apart from my own will? God's going to drag me kicking and screaming and make me be a Christian and all like that? That's not what irresistible grace is. That's what people say. That's a straw man that people throw up. That's not what irresistible grace... Irresistible grace is God coming down and giving you grace, giving you faith, giving you life, giving you faith, not asking you, but giving it to you so that you can respond in repentance and faith towards Him, where if He did not do that, you never could or would do that. That's irresistible grace. Whenever I seen the biblical teaching of that and what it actually meant, what it actually was, I began to love irresistible grace where I used to hate it. I hated that. Irresistible grace and limited atonement were the two things that, and it still is today. Anybody you talk to about the doctrines of grace, those are the two big ones. But really, the thing that they really are off on on all of that is total depravity. If they don't, if they don't understand what the Bible teaches about our inability before God, the rest of that stuff, it doesn't, you know, they're not going to get any of the rest of it. If you realize that we have an inability to, to do anything righteous in the flesh, if you understand that we have no desire in the natural man to come to the God of the Bible 
or to believe the gospel of the Bible. We, we can believe all these other false gospels that's out there of make yourself better, do yourself, you know, choose your own destiny, where you want to go, heaven or hell, or, you know, all this other stuff. We can do that, but we don't submit to the law, or excuse me, to the gospel of Christ. We don't submit to his righteousness. We want to make our own. And so without a supernatural, spiritual change in in, in in things, without being born from above, when I say spiritual change, the flesh never does change. Whenever we're, whenever we're uh, brought to repentance and faith, that doesn't mean that we changed and, and now all of a sudden we went from this to this. We still have the flesh and it's just the flesh and it's always going to be the flesh until the day that we die and put off the flesh. What happens is, is now we've been born from above and we have a spirit that lives inside of us, the Holy Spirit, and that spirit is perfect and holy and righteousness and cannot sin, and that's what lives inside of us. And that's why there's a battle between us and the flesh, the Christian always having this battle between each other. And so we live this life and we, we continue having this battle of whether or not we can do this or do this or do this or not do this. And, and it's, a, it's a complete and total battle. Our mind wants to do that. Our spirit wants to do that. But the flesh is weak. It cannot do that. And so to say that we're saved by doing that is, is completely erroneous. We cannot attain that, obtain that by ourselves. And so irresistible grace is God coming and doing something for us that we never could have done apart from that. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So this word obey here, it's a, it's a passive thing in the fact that it is a factual understanding of what Christ has done for us and resting in the promise that what he did has been applied to us and that that applying of that to our record will also mean that through the rest of our life until the day that we die or Christ comes again, that he has promised to not only give us that uh, uh, that righteousness, but throughout the rest of our life, preserve us to continue to walk in faith towards him. That that preservation, that perseverance, the perseverance of the saints, the P and Tulip, Perseverance isn't some condition that we have to keep either. There's two sides to the coin of perseverance. The other side of that coin is preservation. The only way that the Christian perseveres in the faith is because God is preserving them in the faith. And so that's the promise that Christ has given us. And so we rest in that promise that not only has Christ saved us from sin and death, but Christ has also promised that he would keep us and throughout this life not hold our sins against us, not kick us out because of broken fellowship, not turn his head away from us and say, no, 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 I can't do nothing for you. You know, oh, I'm sorry, you've lost your salvation. Have you ever heard anybody say that you can lose your salvation? There's a lot of people that believe that you can lose your salvation. And it isn't once saved, always saved, Okay. I grew up Southern Baptist Church, and that was kind of the main phrase, once saved, always saved. And everybody that was not a Southern Baptist would always point their finger, oh, you believe that de demon doctrine, once saved, always saved. It's not once saved, always saved, it's once saved. 
it's what does it mean to be saved? How are you saved? I always thought it was kind of funny. I'm getting off on, on something here. I always thought it was funny. As a Southern Baptist, I, I believe strongly in the, uh, the doctrine of eternal security. I believe that whenever someone was saved, they could not lose that salvation. That God would not let them go away. But yet I was so opposed to the fact that God could sovereignly save somebody without their consent. You know, oh, he can keep me saved, but I can't get saved by God. <laughs> that, was, that was kind of crazy. Oh, it's all right for God to overcome my will and make me stay saved. I can't go away from it. But I can't say that about him bringing me to himself. You know, I have to do that by my free will. But once I get there, then God is not going to let me go, even if I want to. See, that doesn't make sense. Inconsistency is what that is. No, the reason that you don't lose your salvation is because you had nothing to do with your salvation. You can't lose something that you didn't find. Christ found you. Christ saved you. All the work was on Christ. And so for you to lose your salvation, God has to undo all of what Christ did. Not what you did. Or do. Or tried to do. Okay? Okay, so... Obeying the truth is, is something that we do that is a resting in or is a uh, reflexive or a uh, assent towards what Christ has done. Does that make sense to everybody? Now, the reason this is so, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm a nerd. This was so intriguing to me because that word obey there, see, whenever I first looked at these words and stuff a long time ago whenever I was an Armenian, you know, that obey the truth meant get pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get out and start obeying and serving the law, okay? But looking at this word this week and, and reflecting upon what the actual meaning behind that word was, is it is it to persuade, to, to convince uh, us of something so that we might rest in it. The next, the next verse actually begins that way. This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. See, there is a persuasion that's going on here. The gospel is a persuasion. Not in this, hey, you need to, you need to start believing this. You need to start believing this. And over the course of time, someone finally says, alright, fine, I believe that. Okay? I can persuade somebody to do something. If I just keep saying it over and over again, I can tell Zach, hey, go out there and pick up that shovel. And if he doesn't do it, hey, go out there and pick up that shovel. Go out there and pick up that shovel. Hey, go out and pick up that shovel. Go out and pick up that shovel. And finally, Zach goes, I don't know, get out there and pick up the shovel just so you'll shut up. The gospel doesn't work that way. Some people think that if you just barrage somebody over and over and over and over again with the gospel, that finally they're going to say, all right, all right. I'm reminded of a... Um, a time whenever I, this was kind of in the in-between stages as the Lord was beginning to bring me into the doctrines of grace. I'd already kind of begin to see the doctrines of grace, but was still in an Armenian church, still <clears throat> traveling with an Armenian singing group. And we was doing a revival at a church. Uh, and anyway, at the end of this, as I finished, I stepped down and the pastor came and took over and they started giving an invitation at the end of the thing for people to come to be saved and we started singing a hymn and after we sang a verse or two of this hymn 
this preacher said, and there was two or three people that had come down to the to the front and everything like that. But this preacher kept saying, I know that there's somebody out there that still needs to come forward and get things right with God and everything. And we're just going to keep singing until that person comes down here. And he's looking around everybody and staring right at this young girl that was about three rows behind where I was standing. Just kept staring at her. You know what you need to do and we're just going to keep singing so we sang like five or six, seven, seven lines of, the, of a hymn, and he just kept standing there. We just kept singing. He just kept staring. She just kept standing there. And after about the tenth time of singing the hymn, then finally this girl came down front, and so they sit there and talked with her a little bit. Then after it was all over, the preacher gets up, all happy, and he says, praise God. You know, brought this girl up and says, oh, she's come down to repent of her sins and uh, ain't this a glorious time? And I'm thinking to myself, no, that girl came down there to, to get us to let, let us go home. She came to stop this thing so that we could go home. And so she knew you wasn't going to quit until she came down. And she knew she was holding up everybody else. And guess what? She wasn't back there the rest of the whole week. She, he drove her away by doing that. See, that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about persuasion, all right? Persuasion isn't trying to talk somebody into something. Persuasion is something that if we are a child of grace, what we are going to cherish in our heart is the fact, because we know that we can't keep the law. We know we can't keep the law. That spiritual life that's in us bears witness with our spirit that we are guilty of sin and can't keep it. Whenever we see that cherished gospel of free salvation. We love it. We desire it. It's food. It's bread that we feast upon. And so that becomes something that we desire. And so this persuasion is not a persuasion of a forceful push to do, but it is a reassurance or it is a, as I said, a reflexively uh, desired thing. We see that and it continues to keep us resting in Christ. I've mentioned it here before. That's why we continue to preach the gospel over and over and over again. People that's already believing the gospel. If you believe the gospel and you're wondering why do you keep preaching the gospel? Well, the reason why is because as the song says, you know, it's, uh, um, it, it's, what is it? I love to tell the story, you know. To those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. See, we hunger and thirst for that gospel. And so Paul says here, this persuasion to not obey the truth, but to be hindered and walk that other way, to walk not uprightly. He says, cometh not of him that calleth you. Now, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if Paul here is talking about himself. Or Paul is talking about um, Christ, but I would say this: it can mean either way. But I would probably say Christ. He says this persuasion to walk not uprightly in faith, but to walk in works. He said this doesn't didn't come from Him that calleth you. Christ who called you to repentance and faith, and that's what repentance and faith is, brethren. Repentance and faith is not repenting of my sins. Repentance is a change of mind of what the gospel is. A change of mind about righteousness. 
I've changed my mind and I'm repenting of thinking that I can keep righteousness for myself and looking and saying that Christ is my only righteousness. That's what true repentance is. Should we repent of sins? Yes, we should do that. But that is not the primary meaning of repentance whenever it talks about the Bible granting us repentance. Granting repentance is God granting us a right understanding of the, of the uh, doctrines of Christ, the, the gospel of salvation. And so he says that this persuasion doesn't come from him that calleth you. It's not, it's not God that is telling you these things. It's somebody else. And that goes back to what he said back in uh, the first part of Galatians, when he said that um, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye received, let him be accursed. For now, for do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. And so what he's saying here is the one who is calling you to this, the one who's hindering you, by the way, the one who is calling you to walk in works and law-keeping, he's not a servant of Christ. Remember that. That's not the gospel. And those who are preaching that should be accursed, and they are not a servant of Christ. And then in verse 9 he says, A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Now why did he say that? It seems like he just kind of dropped that little phrase uh, in here out of nowhere. <clears throat> Paul, that's kind of weird. Why'd you do that? Why, why are you wanting to talk about leaven and bread all of a sudden? Well, because that phrase was a very well-known phrase, especially among Jews. What Paul is saying here is, listen, this persuasion of those who are hindering you is not something that we ought to take lightly. This persuasion of law-keeping for righteousness is not something that you say, oh, well, it's all right if they believe that. You know, we'll just, you know, watch out for it and keep trucking. No, Paul is saying, listen, there is this overall knowledge that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. It doesn't take much leaven if you take some some dough and mix up some dough and put a little yeast in there. It doesn't take much of that yeast to make that dough double, triple, quadruple, you know? And what Paul is saying is it just takes a little persuasion of works religion in your congregation and it will try to leaven the whole entire lump. It's going to spread like cancer throughout the whole entire congregation. People are going to be hindered by this. People are going to be confused by this. People are going to be divided by this. Remember, it caused division uh, among the churches in Antioch, and that's why Paul and Barnabas went down to uh, Jerusalem to talk with the, the apostles, and when, even when they got there and talked with the apostles, it caused a division among the apostles because there were some among uh, the, the church of Jerusalem who believe that you ought to be circumcised and keep the law. And division happened there. See, that's what Paul's saying. I'm not just saying this by intellectual things, Galatian church. I'm telling you this by, by experience. I experienced it in Antioch. Preaching of the law caused a division among the saints. 
whenever I went down to Jerusalem to talk to them about this doctrine that's being spread by some of these Judaizers, he said it caused division there. The preaching of law for salvation or for righteousness or for maintaining your walk in Christ, he said that is going to cause division among your churches. A little leaven will leaven the whole lump. And that's why I mentioned earlier, we have to be careful about the doctrines that we keep in our church and about those who are spreading unbiblical doctrine within our church because it is a little leaven that can leaven the whole lump. And I've seen that. I know of a church over in Alabama. We have some friends that was going to a church over in Alabama. And a little leaven of you get baptized, and once you get baptized, then that's what saves you. You're born again when you get baptized. Some people call it baptismal regeneration. A little bit of that teaching got into their church, and it spread like wildfire in there. And eventually, the majority of the church began to believe that. And so some of the brethren, specifically our friends, they ended up having to leave the church over it because it overtook the whole church. And uh, and so um, that's why Paul is saying this. A little leaven, leaven of the whole lump. Is doctrinal um, uh, issues worthy to divide over? Absolutely. Absolutely. I understand that in modern churches today, the goal is to keep as many people as you can keep in your church. I understand that the goal of the modern church is to just be as loving as you can so that nobody will feel bad and nobody will go away. But again, as I mentioned before, biblical love to the brethren in the scriptures, and you can find this in, in, in uh, John's epistles. Uh, it's in 1 John, I believe. You can find that doctrinal lo or love for the brethren is showing doctrinal care for the brethren, is encouraging proper doctrine, correcting in doctrine, reproving, rebuking, and, and encouraging in the true gospel. That's what biblical love is about. That's why we are so strong on doctrine. That's why we push doctrine here. And we've seen people come. We've seen people go. And the reason why a lot of times, sometimes people go so quickly is because of the doctrine. It's a hard doctrine. I mean, they even told it to Jesus. Jesus preached the doctrine. And they came and said, this is a hard saying. And, and who can keep it? <clears throat> And many went away from Jesus and never walked with him anymore of his disciples. They never walked with him again because his teachings were so hard. Brethren, the, this teaching of imputed righteousness for salvation and righteousness alone, this thing of Jesus doing it all and us not having to keep conditions is a hard teaching. The natural mind cannot fathom it. It won't receive it. It thinks it's foolishness. And people say it all the time. You mean to say that we don't have to do something to get saved? We at least got to reach out and grab it. Brethren, it's all free. The Holy Spirit has been given to us that we might know what's freely been given to us. So a little leaven, leaven with the whole lump. We'll do a study sometime on, on, um, on uh, keeping doctrine and the importance of doctrine. But... Uh, Know that that is all over the epistles of Paul that we are to keep. He told Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine. He said, watch over the doctrine. 
Now verse 10, I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. So Paul here is saying, I have confidence in you through the Lord. He's saying, I know that if you're truly a child of grace, that you're going to continue to think gospel-wise. You're going to think as in the gospel and not in this other junk that's been taught to you. He's saying, listen, I have confidence that those who are the children of grace are going to see the error of these men's ways, the error of this doctrine that's been preached, and you're going to turn back towards what you were called unto. And we have that confidence, don't we, brethren? We don't just trash people. And, and even whenever I say we got to guard our doctrine closely, and we got to watch our doctrine, and we got to, if the leaven's there, get the leaven out, there still is a loving way that we do that. How do we do that? Well, the Bible tells us that we are to, uh, with meekness and long-suffering, correct these brethren in hope that God would give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. We do that by long-suffering. We do that by meekness. We don't come all propped up like a peacock, like we know everything. You got it wrong. You got to get out. I've seen so many churches that have wounded so many true Christians who have just not come to the knowledge. God's not revealed those things to them yet, but yet a church, because it wants to keep doctrinal purity, has done it the wrong way. They've attacked them so harshly and treated them so coarsely that they went away hurt, and they don't want to go back to churches because of that. But if we do things in a loving way, there's a loving way to correct. There's a loving way to rebuke. There's a loving way to repeat. I was telling Kevin last night, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, there's been many times that uh, men in this church and, and other men that I know has come and, and said, hey, have you, you might want to take a look at something that you preached here. And, you know, this verse, you said this, but look at this verse over here and this verse over here. And I've come to realize, hey, I was wrong on something. And I was thankful that those brethren came and corrected me, but they didn't come down and say, hey, ding dong, you shouldn't have done that. You know? Why'd you preach that? Well, if you preach that, I can't be your friend anymore. You're not coming to my church anymore. You know? Now, if they would have done that, I would have... I told you the story about uh, my friend J.C. Fulton. He's my best friend now. But uh, it wasn't long after I first met him. I'd only met him like one or two times. We were on a, a, a Baptist uh, symposium forum, email forum together. But I had only met him in person like one time. And... Uh, I was at a bookstore, and I came up. I was still coming into the Doctrines of Grace and still trying to learn a bunch of things. And he came up. I came up to this bookstore, and he was there. And uh, another guy that I'm friends with was there who owned the bookstore. And they was outside, and they was talking about the Lord's Supper. And uh, I grew up in a church that believes in uh, open communion, that as long as you call yourself a Christian, you can take the Lord's Supper. And uh, so I'm kind of walking up, and Brother J.C., he's talking about uh, how that the Lord's Supper is only for the local church, and that, that it's for the members of that church. And I come walking up, and I hear that, and I said, man, you don't know what, y'all don't know what you're talking about. And uh, I said, you know, if you're a Christian, you have the right to take the Lord's Supper wherever you want, whenever you want. Brother J.C., only known me one time, 
he said, brother, I, I believe you're an heir in there. Here, let me show you why. And he got a Bible off the bookshelf at that bookstore, and he opened it up, and he took me in here, and he said, if you believe what you believe, he said, what about discipline, church discipline? And I said, well, what about church discipline? I said, and I actually said this. I said, what does church discipline have anything to do with the Lord's Supper? And he just kind of looked at me and said, brother, he said, I think you really need to take the Bible and go back and study the Lord's Supper. Study what Paul was writing about in Corinthians. And study about what happened with Christ and the importance of the elements. And he said, I really think you need to study that before you make such assertions. And so he gave me some stuff and pointed me and was showing me some things in there. And, and I kind of went away. I was kind of quiet. Went away and I began to study it. And I, the Lord showed me that I was wrong. You know, I love that brother for doing that. And now he's my best friend. Now we argue about a whole lot of stuff. Most of the time I'm right, though. <laughs> I'll just say that in case you watch it. <laughs> we go back and forth on stuff. And listen, truly, truly, truly. Him correcting me, and I believe also my correcting him, that we have edified each other in, in a way that's biblical. Not patting any, either one of us on the back. Both of us have a long way to go before we're ever worth anything. Just saying that whenever you do things the biblical way, it's always good. God designed it that way. When God designed church discipline, he said the purpose of church discipline isn't to be harsh on the person leaving. It's actually designed so that if they truly are the children of God and you put them outside of the church, that that will convict them, bring conviction to them, sorrow to their heart of being removed from the body of Christ and, having, and, and, and cause them to repent and come back. See, the whole purpose of church discipline and correction and rebuke is to regain that brother, regain that sister. And so Paul here is saying, listen, I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded. You're not going to listen to these fools. You're going to follow after the gospel. But he said, but as far as those fools who's been preaching this stuff to you, he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, as they say that I am, He says, why do I yet suffer persecution? Listen, whenever you preach the doctrine of Christ, the true gospel, you're going to suffer persecution. The churches that you are in aren't going to want you in there no more. The pulpits that you preached in, they don't want you to preach in them no more. The friends that you had, they may not be your friends much longer. The family that you're in, there may be a division. They may love you because of who you are, but there is division there because there is not uh, there is not uh, a communion in the gospel. There is not a a there is not a fellowship in the gospel. There, <clears throat> he says, if I preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. He said, listen, the offense of the cross. Remember, Jesus talked about this. Uh, other parts of scripture talks about this it says that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing that those who are of the natural mind cannot receive it it's foolishness to them but Jesus also said that you know that he was a stu that he's a stumbling block 
That stumbling block is something that someone falls over, trips them up. They don't like it. You know, the Bible says this person who's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, to the children of God, whether Jew or Gentile, is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He's the thing that holds it all up. He's the thing upon which all of it is built. Whenever Peter was asked, Jesus said, Who do you think I am? Peter said, Thou art Christ. Jesus said, That's true. And on this rock, and he wasn't talking about Peter. He said, On this rock, the fact that Christ is, Jesus is, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, upon this rock shall he build his church. The foundation of all things as it pertains to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus is placed upon Christ Jesus. Not your will, not your desire, not your choosing of your destiny. It's upon Christ. He is the chief cornerstone, the foundation, the the one who holds it all up. Everything's built on that. <clears throat> if it's not built on Christ, it's going to fall. The Bible gives that parable of that, that story. If you build your house upon sand, what's going to happen? It's going to wash away. Paul says, listen, I'm, I'm confident the things that are built on Christ is going to stay. And if you're a child of grace, you will hear the gospel, believe the gospel. You'll turn away, back away and repent from this nonsense. I don't preach this nonsense. If I did, I wouldn't be persecuted like I am now. And he said, listen, if I'm preaching something that is not the gospel, then the offense of the gospel has ceased because the offense is the freeness of the gospel. That's what's offensive to the religionist, to the self-righteousness, to the self-righteous. The offense is that I have no hand in my own salvation. Now let me ask you, you who believe the doctrines of grace, who gets riled up the most? What gets whenever you start talking to a friend or a family member about the doctrines of grace? What riles them up quicker than anything than whenever you tell them that they don't have any choice or any will in their salvation? They don't even get riled up as much about Christ only died for the elect. They don't even get riled up with that as much as they do whenever you tell them you didn't have anything to do with your salvation. You didn't choose Christ. You start talking about free choice, listen, the gloves come off. Why is that? It's because that is our natural bent. That's what the Adamic nature, our natural nature, desires is a righteousness that we provide ourselves. Adam and Eve, whenever they sinned, they thought they could cover that sin and make good with God by covering themselves. God wouldn't have nothing to do with it. <clears throat> They thought they could be as God and choose their own path. God said, no, you're not going to do that. The day that you eat that, you're going to die. You're not going to become like God. You're going to die. See, brethren, it's all about what Christ did. It's all about his work. And so Paul here says in verse 12, harsh. Matter of fact, this is some of the same harshness we've seen in chapter 1 whenever he said, that let them be accursed. He said here, I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. That word cut off there was a phrase that they used 
in regards to a, a father and his son when his son had <clears throat> dishonored the family or had went out and become um, uh, uh, dishonorable. He was like, I would rather that God would just kill my son than my son to continue to bring dishonor upon himself and upon our family. Paul is using that same phrase. I would rather that these Judaizers that is preaching this law gospel, who is leading the children of God astray, I would rather that they be completely cut off from the land of the living than for them for another minute to trouble the people of God. That's harsh, isn't it? That's a harsh saying. No different than what he said in chapter 1, that, that if any man preach these things, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Is it important? Yes, it is important. If you don't understand it, keep studying the Word of God. Pray that Christ would give you understanding of the difference between law and grace. Pray that Christ would give you the right understanding about what it means to walk in the Spirit. To walk in obedience to the truth. That he might give you the ability to discern between the spirits that are preaching law and the spirits that is preaching grace. The Bible tells us that we are to discern the spirits, right? To know whether or not they are from God or from Satan. Well, I'll just stop right there, brethren, because uh, as we move into 13, there's some other things that uh, kind of breaks from what we're saying here, and I want to uh, pick up with that, but... Does anybody have any questions or any comments? Anything you'd like to add or scripture that might have went well with what we talked about? By the way, I forgot to mention in that um, those two words, obey the truth, that word obey, I told you it was PPO. That word persuasion that was in verse 8, that comes from that root word, which is PPO. So that persuasion, that obeying, that that is linked together there. It just wasn't my scrambled hermeneutics it was actually it's actually the root word of that other word obey which is to passively or to reflexively look at what christ has done for us to live in faith in what christ has done trusting in him and looking to him as our righteousness all right does anybody have anything to add all right let's bow Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your grace once again. We thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who comes and grants us repentance and faith to trust in Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the word of God that you have preserved for us and that you will continue to preserve for us as long as time continues. That we, your people, whether it be in this time period or time periods in the future, will always have a testimony, a witness of who Christ Jesus is. We know this book from cover to cover is about him and about his gospel. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to help us proclaim it, to keep true to it, to preach it faithfully. I pray, Father, that you would keep us in the faith to believe it, to to. Uh, spread it on to future generations, Lord, those who you bring us into contact with. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, continue to uh, uh, minister and work within our uh, church, that you might help us, Lord, uh, in this town to be a witness and a light for you. 
I pray, Lord, that you bring others who believe this gospel. They, too, might come alongside of us to labor in the gospel and to worship together, to edify one another, and to build each other up in the most holy faith. Lord, we do continue to pray these things uh, and, and ask, Lord, that you just might bless it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.